Hello, everybody. What follows is a B-side that was released to patrons of the Dead Punnett Society about a month ago. It features a chat on the history, theory, practice, and political economy of neoliberalism, featuring Ray Kiley, who is a politics professor at Queen Mary University of London. Neoliberalism, as all of you probably know, is a word that's thrown around quite haphazardly. Everything seems to be neoliberal these days. Neoliberalism seems to be a master signifier, an explanation par excellence for all of the phenomenon in today's society. I myself am quite guilty of this from time to time. When I say something is neoliberal, I oftentimes am referring to this deep historical transformation in personal, public, social, and economic relationships that we're going to be breaking down in today's show with Ray Kiley. As I mentioned at the outset, this was a show that was initially released as a B-side for the benefit of the patrons of the Dead Pundit Society, but it's just too damn good to live behind a paywall forever. So this episode is brought to you thanks to the generosity of our patrons. And with that being said, while this show is free to listen to, it's certainly not free to make. So if you like the politics that we discuss on a weekly basis, and you want to help keep this project up and running, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a patron today. I know many in the podcast and Patreon sphere over the past year or two have succumbed to the consumer model of Patreon support. That is, okay, you give us X money and we'll give you X subscriber content. And while our subscribers do receive subscriber-only content, I don't think that's what this is all about. The way that I like to view Patreon support is that the people who have the means to do so are helping to keep this show free for the masses. So if you listen to DPS with any regularity, I urge you to go to patreon.com slash deadpundits and give us a little bit of support to help keep this free for as many people as possible. And that goes for all media projects, not just mine, and certainly not just podcasts. We need a thriving socialist ecosystem in order to face down the challenges presented to us by our contemporary political moment. So fund, fund, fund if you have the means to do so. If not, you know, maybe one day you'll get that good union job. Or maybe you'll pay down your college debt. <laughs> LOL, am I right? Maybe Bernie Sanders will write off your college debt. And then you'll be able to start contributing to this robust socialist media ecosystem that we so desperately need in order to succeed. All right, enough out of me this week. I'll step off my soapbox. Enjoy this B-side. Thanks again to the patrons. Shout out to them. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to today's B-Side. We're going to be doing a deep, deep dive into the topic of neoliberalism. I've been wanting to cover neoliberalism as a, a theme, a historical moment, a theoretical object, a politi political economic phenomenon, if you will, for quite some time. And I've been waiting for the right person and the right set of books and articles to come along in order to do that. And I think I've found, I think I've found those things. Uh, this is going to be part one of a two-part series. This one features Ray Kiley. He's written a book recently. It's called The Neoliberal Paradox. We're going to be discussing that book at length, doing a deep, deep dive into this stuff. It's, it's one of those classic DPS episodes you're going to have to listen to two or three times to really wrap your heads around, but those are the fun ones. Anyway, part two is going to be coming out in a week or two. That features a chat with Aaron Major. He wrote a really great piece for Catalyst Journal. It's called Ideas Without Power. So if you guys are Catalyst subscribers, read up on that piece. 
be prepared for it. That interview is going to be coming out in a week or two. Not sure if I'm going to make that an A or a B side, but either way, you guys are patrons. You'll hear it no matter what I end up deciding. So everybody look forward to that as well. And before we get to the interview, just a quick pitch and a shout out to the patrons who have been chatting it up on the discourse forum. That forum is up and running. We're starting to get things going, getting to know one another a little bit, chopping it up, having some good debates. I've really enjoyed that interaction, and the more of you on that forum, the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, debates that you'd like to raise about any of the A-sides, the B-sides, or whatever, if there's a news item that you'd like to comment on or get my thoughts on or talk to the patrons about, bring it up. So everybody head over to that discourse forum today. Say hello, introduce yourself. Shouts out to the people over there on that forum that I've chatted it up with over the past couple of weeks. I've really enjoyed your input so far. Let's keep that up. All right. Without further ado, on with the interview with Ray Kiley. Once again, joining us on the line today is Ray Kiley. Ray is a professor of politics at Queen Mary University of London, and he is the author of many, many books. The most recent that is uh, most topical for our conversation today is titled The Neoliberal Paradox. That is out uh, last year. It is uh, fresh off the press, paperback version, uh, presumably coming later this summer. Really excited to chat with Ray about this. Thanks so much for joining us on Dead Planet Society, Ray Kiley. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm very glad to be here. So you are a prolific scholar and author, and you have uh, many books. I've been following your work for quite some time. People who have been listening to the Dead Planet Society for the last couple of years to try to place you in the scholarly tradition or terrain, if you will, of of previous guests, it would be similar, most similar, I would say, in style and approach to uh, Leo Panitch, who has been on the show a couple of times. You have your own interpretations of obviously neoliberal globalization and international relations. But for uh, those of you who haven't spent long hours in graduate seminar rooms, uh, pouring over dusty books, that'll give you a little idea of uh, the way that, where, where Ray's writings and provocations sort of set in. I've been looking to have a series on neoliberalism for quite some time, but I brought Ray Kiley on the show to talk about the kind of material and historical aspects of neoliberalism as it has unfolded throughout history. So let's begin there, Ray. The book, The Neoliberal Paradox, kind of gives away the thesis, I think, right off the bat. And let's, let's spell out this paradox for people because it's, it's quite it's, – it's fascinating. You write, neoliberalism's paradox can be captured between this gap, between the spontaneity – and the constructivism, which makes neoliberalism so difficult to define. So let's start there. Define for our audience and for myself this very difficult formulation of this neoliberal paradox that you start with. Okay. Well, although you said that I'm interested in the uh, the materials or the ideational, I'm going to start by talking about the ideational. And I do think the ideational was very important. I'll come to some problems with that. But in terms of explaining the paradox, we have to focus on neoliberal ideas and think about how these are played out in the real world. But essentially, my argument that one way of putting it is neoliberalism, like liberalism, can't live with the state and can't live without the state. Now, that's true. But what neoliberalism promises is, if you like, a pristine market, a pure market. So the fact that it can't live without the state 
is a source of weakness for neoliberalism because it's always relying on the state in terms of state reforms, in terms of regulation and so on. But at the same time, when things go wrong, it's got a ready-made scapegoat. And the ready-made scapegoat is, of course, the state. So we can see this in terms of the financial crisis of uh, 2008. How did, how did, if you like, the libertarian right and the neoliberal right in the United States, for example, explain the crisis? Well, they said it was central banks or they said it was too much intervention in the housing market. Even though, if you see the uh, minority report, the official uh, in congressional investigation into the financial crisis, but the minority report, which is different, you, you had some libertarians uh, who actually argued that it was basically intervention in the housing market and it was basically... Uh, it was the Democrats trying to get ethnic minorities on the housing market. A few years before, some of those very same people had said, in fact, the state had distorted the housing market and had artificially restricted access to the housing market. Then, once the crisis, they'd actually artificially expanded it. This is a classic example of using the state as a scapegoat. So it can't live with the state and can't live without the state, but it has a very useful scapegoat for when things go wrong. So it sounds to me like at the heart of this neoliberal paradox is, as you as you rightly mentioned, certainly not ignoring the ideational aspects of neoliberalism, but bringing them into relation and oftentimes the way that they uh, contradict the material realities or the ter- material, let's see, administration of neoliberalism. So let's backtrack to the the birth of of neoliberalism. You you, you produce a really fascinating history here, where you start. Pre-World War One, really in the at the heart of the beginnings of the pro-democracy movement throughout Europe, the extension of the franchise, the collective struggle for social and political and economic rights and, and sort of bourgeois liberal democratic societies, and that neoliberalism should be seen as a as an early response to these kind of collectivist pressures. Let's start there to kind of uh, set, set the tone for this discussion. Yeah, okay. Well, you said pre-World War One. I. I mean, it, uh, the movement as a movement really starts pre-World War Two, but you can see some of the ideas pre, pre-World pre War One and, and beyond that. I mean, in the book, I mean, I talk about different strands of neoliberalism. I talk about German auto-liberalism, which in English there's not a great deal of work on. It, it's growing at the moment. Werner Bonefeld, uh, who is German, uh, has, has done some really valuable work on that. Obviously, the Austrian school, well, we know a lot about the Austrian school. Chicago, but I think Chicago is much more important post-45. What I didn't really do in the book, but I did hint at, uh, I, I mentioned French neoliberalism, and uh, but I didn't go into much detail, not least because I don't know very much about that. But there is also Italian neoliberalism. Uh, and we can see this in terms of the European Union at the moment. Perhaps we'll talk about Brexit later. Um, but so there is an Italian tradition as well. And I think some of that can be rooted in some some work by people like Pareto. One of the first people to be described as a neoliberal, albeit in a slightly different way, was one of Pareto's friends and colleagues, Pantaleone, who in the late 19th century was one of the first people to be described as a neoliberal. What I think Unite. I, I think neoliberalism in many ways, although Hayek says something very different in his appendix to the Constitution of Liberty, but I beg to differ with his characterization of conservatism. And I'm, my characterization of conservatism is very similar to Corey Robbins uh, in The Reactionary Mind. Is, is Essentially, I think conservatism is about 
a fear of democracy. It's about a fear of collectivism. And it's what, how do we maintain elite rule? That's not just, we can't just see that as a class project in the, in the Marxist sense. They just believe that some people are fit to govern because they have virtue. And I think that's what, what, that's what really inspires neoliberals in terms of the German neoliberals, uh, the Ordo liberals and, and Hayek above all else. What I think essentially is while he sees Keynesianism, socialism, uh, even fascism, I mean, he's completely wrong in his characterization of fascism, I think, but he sees them all as uh, the, all these collectivist things as leading to a kind of tyranny of the majority to go back to kind of people like John Stuart Mill and, and particularly for Hayek, Tocqueville. And the tyranny of the majority is the idea, if you like, to, we can want to go back to Locke, which I try to do in the book, is is the propertyless trying to impose their will on the, on the uh, propertied minority. And in a sense, to put it crudely, I think what neoliberalism and a lot of interwar conservative thought are advocating is a tyranny of the minority. And that's what Pareto, that's what in, that's, that was the link between Pareto's political sociology and his economics. So I think all these things that, you know, it, it's basically this fear of democracy, fear of the mob, if you want to call it that, you, or fear of socialism is essentially what inspires these people. So it's about trying to, to maintain what they perceive to be some kind of liberal economic order, but you need politics and you need the state to do that. And what you get, I think, in the Ordo liberals and in the Austrians is essentially an authoritarian liberalism. It's, it's, it's an alternative to fascism, a different right-wing uh, approach, but it is basically not democratic. It's not even liberal democratic. It's very suspicious of democracy. And we all know about Hayek and what he says years later about Chile and all these things. So it's, I think that neoliberalism has its roots in kind of a search for an authoritarian and undemocratic alternative to try to preserve the market order. This is really great. I, we, we've done in classic uh, Dead Punnett Society fashion, we've started off, we're deep, deep in the weeds here. And so let's let's take the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes to unpack uh, the, the real, the breadth and depth of what you've just laid out for our audience. I don't want to presume any prior knowledge uh, for this conversation, which is, uh, you know, it's it's difficult. My audience is all over the place in terms of uh, uh, in terms of what they've read and what they bring to the table. But let's presume zero knowledge. Let's start with Locke and Tocqueville, because that's where your book begins, in a sense. And as you've mentioned here, uh, that is uh, these theories and the the way that they were lifted up at the time that they were lifted up. I think Ellen Mason's Wood has written quite wrote a lot, quite a lot about that. The sort of um, resuscitation of these liberal thinkers at, at precisely the moment where the masses were rising up in uh, all over Europe, demanding democratic rights and participation in economic and, and social and political aspects of, of those previously sort of aristocratic societies. Talk to us a little bit about Locke. I mean, w w give us a little uh, a quick elevator sp speech on on Locke, if you will. What who was John Locke? What was his fundamental kind of understanding of property and liberty and and one's relationship to social order? And then uh, obviously Tocqueville, and then the reaction uh, and the way that those were wielded in the in the face of this democratic upheaval in the mid 19th century okay uh, so we start with Locke, 17th century he's probably with hobbes uh, the hobbes and Locke are two most famous english political philosophers Locke essentially 
is now seen, I'm, well, I'm not sure you could say then, but this is how their ideas become unpacked, is, is, is in many respects, although Hobbes in some respects is as well, seen as the founder of, um, of liberal thought or one of the main instigators of liberal thought. His most famous, and the thing that why I think he's relevant for understanding neoliberalism, I don't think he would have been a neoliberal, but who knows, it was his theory of property. Now, his argument is essentially there's a state of nature, there's a, a primitive state of nature where land is commonly owned or commonly held. But at some point, you get a more advanced state of nature and people. his argument is people labour on land and that's an extension of their personal property, their body, and so that gives them a claim to be the owners of private property. And that, for Locke, is the basis on, of, of the origins of private property. And with private property, you get improved what he calls improvement. Land is then used, if you like, as the basis for accumulation, and you get money. Uh, and we might call improvement today, if you like, development. It would be another way of putting it. And on that basis, Locke was a big apologist for colonialism because he argued that uh, in the Americas there was a, a primitive state of nature, so you could have, um, if people took land, uh, through labouring and laying claim to to, to that land uh, and making that private property, then that would improve the land. So that's Locke, a very, very basic account of Locke. Yeah, yeah. Now, Locke goes off in, there's different interpretations of Locke. I mean, if labour is the basis of property, there is a kind of Lockean argument which actually argues if labour is the basis of property, then there shouldn't be so much property accumulated in such few hands but i think most most libertarian uh nosic and people like that w would argue that uh, that doesn't really matter because actually um there's still a free and equal exchange in terms of contract between a landowner and a propertyless proletarian if you want to call it in marxist terms and that's that that's usually how Locke is interpreted today and you get that kind of argument in um neoliberalism as well particularly with, with Hayek, but also, I mean, perhaps we'll come on to this, there were, there were disagreements between the Chicago School and the German Ordo Liberals about monopoly, for example, which in some respects is about property concentrating too much in too few hands, but perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself a bit there. But that's Locke. So that's Locke. What was, sorry, you wanted Topville as well. Yeah, let, 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 can I ask a clarifying okay. question about Locke to kind of spell this out in relationship to Marx, which Marx will be someone who's much more, perhaps much more familiar to my audience, uh, those of, of out there who haven't been steeped in the kind of uh, political theory intro courses, if you will. So Locke would appear to have certain Marxian trajectories, but what precisely is it about the contract and the labor contract that the Lockeans sort of uh, import from, from that version of Locke? Uh, and, and what was Marx's uh, kind of critique of that labor? Well, the, contract? well, there's lots of things to say, and, and I suppose one of the best critiques of Locke uh, would be Jerry Cohen, although it was actually not necessarily a critique of Locke. It was a critique of how Locke has been updated by libertarians. And essentially, the, the problem with Locke is, and Locke, I think, talks about this, it's, if you pick an apple off a tree, that's your labor. So what do you lay claim to? Do you lay claim to the apple? Do you lay claim to the tree? Do you lay claim to the orchard or the, all the land round? Are you labouring on all of that? Well, you're not really, are you? And that, this is where obviously Marx comes in because essentially the argument would be that, in fact, 
you know, labor isn't really the basis for property. It's basically appropriation is the basis for property. And that is Marx's argument when he talks about things like the enclosures and things like that. So it's basically about pushing, it's separating the producers from the means of production. And you might have that in, if you like, in a sort of primitive communi- communism system or the commons or whatever it might be. But essentially, it's not about um, labor and property. It property, if you like, it's a force theory of property. The basis for private property isn't people laboring on that, although there might be some examples of that. And I suppose in the Americas, there might have been some. But of course, that common land, and we know what happened to Native Americans, that common land was taken away and it expropriated. And so this is about, if you like, a violent force. I mean, I think Marx says somewhere, I haven't read Marx for a long time, I have to confess, but I think he said somewhere like, uh, violence is a productive force. There's some quote from Marx from, I haven't read, as I say, I've read him for quite a while, but something like that. Uh, and this is where, you know, his uh, material about uh, the enclosures and separating the producers from the means of production come in. So Marx is obviously a very critical of the, uh, of the Lockeans. One of the things that seems really uh, instrumental, a common theme that emerges uh, from their interpretation of Locke and the early liberal theorists is the alleged fairness of the labor contract. And it seems to me that that's the, that's the thread that carries us up to present with neoliberalism and all of its contradictions uh, or amidst all of its contradictions. It might be the thing that unites all of the various uh, aspects of neoliberalism you know, in the face of its contradictions, perhaps I might even venture. It's this idea that, um, as you mentioned, a, a labor contract is uh, freely and fairly entered into and therefore it covers over the kind of imbalances of power that various property distributions contribute to. Maybe spell that out for us a little bit and how and how that carries into the present day, which covers over kind of concerns of inequality in, in, in power dynamics. Yeah, well <laughs> – there is a contract, and I suppose if, if, you, you know, if you want to look at things beyond, uh, you, if, if you want to look at media appearances, you look at a contract. Most people don't read their contract of employment; just don't, just as they don't read the terms and conditions uh, to a, attach to computer items or whatever it might be. But, but essentially, and that's quite important. Well, that's quite an important point. And Keen Birch uh, has written some really good stuff on this about about some of that stuff about information. Uh, and things like that. But anyway, um, going back to the, uh, the the Marx analogy, what I think is important there is, yes, you can take it or leave it. But of course, the question then, and this is before welfare states are around, which is the collectivism which neoliberals don't like, or an example of the collectivism that neoliberals don't like. But essentially, you, you can take it or leave it. But of course, if you leave it and you haven't got direct access to the means of production, uh, to use Marxist terms, you starve. So Marx, of course, talks about the dull compulsion of economic relations. If you have direct access to land, okay, um, you can grow some turnips. I mean, it's going to be a very dull diet if you're just eating turnips. Maybe you can exchange your turnips for someone's carrots or whatever. It, it's pretty dull, um, but you know, you you have direct access to the means of means of production to grow turnips now if you're pushed off the land how are you going to get turnips well you need money well how are you going to get money well hopefully the people that do own the property will employ you for a wage so that you can then go to market to buy turnips and who knows 
years later, it might even be some fast food. Okay, so that's that's Marx's. Marx, Marx is very much his argument is that this is a social relation of production, and Locke is trying to kind of naturalize. Although, in fairness to Locke, I mean Locke is talking about how these things are historically constituted. Now, uh, in a not very convincing way, that's the problem. Um, but also the the assumption that somehow that this is fair is a fair and equal relationship. Leaving aside, of course, what Locke says about slaves and women and all these other other things, um, which aren't great, it has to be said. Yeah, but it's a very unequal relationship, and so it's a social relation for Marx. And this is why Marx was, you know, so much more convincing than people like Locke. So a contract is one thing, but it's the, it's the, it's you know what you've got to lose. And for the employer, the the, the property owner, well, they just find someone else. Uh, there's a massive reserve army of look at today. There's a massive global reserve army of labour, so you just employ someone else. But for the um, uh, employee or the worker or the proletarian, well, they've got nothing. Now you might say, well, of course, in some places they have a welfare state, but that's because of they fought for those things. Okay, and that comes back to what I said earlier about the you know neoliberalism is a response to collectivism and it's a response in part to things like the welfare state. Good stuff. This is a really great summary for folks and it will really clarify people's thoughts, perhaps those of us who haven't gone back to Locke in quite some time. And as you mentioned, I think, you know, we're always unfair to the original thinker, him or herself here. There's a difference as with Marx and the Marxists. There's a difference with Locke and the Lockeans. But one of the things that uh, David Harvey really makes a lot of hay of in his discussions of capital, you know, for better, for worse. Uh, Sometimes I agree with Harvey and other times I don't. uh, But that's, you know, that's the way it goes in scholarly sort of debates. But the thing I love about him is the way he breaks down these Robinson odds. These that really, the, he focuses and emphasizes these Robin mm-hmm. Crusoe stories that are developed by the likes of John Locke that naturalize, as you really brilliantly spelled out there, these, these uh, very unnatural and artificial and historically constituted social relationships. And with John Locke, that has horrific, uh, you know, implications, including just really barbaric understandings uh, in, in terms of race and gender and ethnicity and, and support for colonialism, very brutal colonialist projects in, in, in his time, of course. Um, so this is all really great stuff. Let's let's move forward. Let's power on. You, you've brought up Pareto, which is, is someone who will not be a stranger to the economists in the audience. But talk about wh- what he was up to in his innovations and in the kind of um, in that frame of analysis that he produces and contributes to the kind of, quote, economic science. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, he's a. I think he's a very interesting character. When I, when I, first studied at university uh, in 1982, uh, one of the first things we did in a course called Introduction to Politics was we did elite theory, and we did Pareto, we did Moscow, and we did Macaus, and we did a bit of Schumpeter, and then we did some more radical elite, uh, elite theory like C. Wright Mills. But we're not talking about C. Wright Mills here. Pareto, I think, is interesting because. I didn't really know at that point anything about his economics. And now then I became much more a political economist. So I, I then realized that uh, Pareto was, it was in many ways, he, he, he was a neoclassical economist. Now, neoclassicals and neoliberals have a quite an ambiguous, ambiguous relationship to each other. Um, Hayek likes to think, for example, he's not a neoclassical thinker. Uh, I don't want to go down that route 
perhaps at this moment in time, but so I'll, I'll focus on Pareto. Um, but Pareto essentially believed uh, uh, that individuals are rational in terms of their market transactions. The, pro- the problem is, and this is where the link between his economics and his politics, a lot of scholarship around them just say, well, one day he was an economist and then, then he got bored with economics and decided to do politics. Now, I argue in the book, and I'm not the first person to argue this, that Richard Bellamy, who's a, who's a, a specialist on Italian political thought, has argued it very well. So I owe a debt to him, no doubt about that. But essentially, the argument is that his economics is very intimately intimately linked to his political sociology. And w- what the link is, is that in economics, individuals are rational, they know their interests, their consumers, and, and, and all those kinds of things. The trouble is, in politics, they're irrational. And they're irrational because politics is a collective endeavour. And so what Pareto is essentially looking for is some way to deal with the irrationalism of politics so that he can he can maintain what he perceives to be the rationalism of the marketplace. Now, of course, we might want to challenge the idea that the marketplace is a, is a place of rationality. Think of the way financial markets work, for example. Uh, but let's leave that aside. Let's leave that aside for now. Let's just give him the benefit of the doubt um, and say, okay, that's his, pro- that's his, that's his project. Uh, so elite theory, I mean, often is presented as this objective analysis that there are always elites in society. There's always rulers and ruled, but that doesn't tell you very much. That's like saying Henry VIII is the same as Clement Attlee. They're just another, they're, they're, or Donald Trump is the same as uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, whatever it might be. That, that these, are, these are ridiculous things to say. Or uh, to some degree, there might well be always rulers and ruled, but what's the basis of their rule? Um but essentially, I, I think that's not what's interesting in Pareto. What's interesting in Pareto is his project, and it's basically a normative political project. And, and what the project is designed to do is to preserve the market by somehow limiting the irrational political sphere. And for that to happen, you have to have people, elites, that have the knowledge to preserve uh, the market sphere by making sure that the masses or the mob or the working class or whatever or socialists don't get too much power. And that really is what Hayek is talking about as well, to some degree in the road to serfdom in 1944, but really massively in the Constitution of Liberty in 1960. It's a very, very similar argument. So Pareto there is a case, I, would, I wouldn't want to say this uh, in the book, but, you know, let, let's be outrageous here. You, there's a good case of saying that Pareto is the first neoliberal. Okay, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's completely true, but, you know, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to. Yeah. Well, he well he embodies he embodies that that yeah, uh, that absolutely. paradox that contradiction that you, that you really that centers and grounds your understanding your sort of non definitional definition of neoliberalism as a process as mm-hmm. this paradoxical process in a fascinating way. So let's hone in on that more explicitly. Uh, Hayek, as as with Pareto, and that was fascinating for me. I'm learning a lot here. Uh, you know, having read your book and uh, sort of now I'm fitting it all together, putting the puzzle pieces together, if you will. Uh, Hayek embodies the contradiction to a more extreme degree, we might say. And so far as, you know, Hayek's most famous critique of collectivism and socialism and even New Deal liberalism was that there's just no way that central planning or, or, or state 
um, you know, administration of markets and society uh, could possibly uh, have more information or more um, access to, to truth or knowledge than this kind of collective brain of the market. But that seems to come into direct conflict with his understanding of the, the necessity of elites to drive society, which then, of course, bleeds into, like you say, these these terrible and barbaric defenses of dictatorship in Chile and elsewhere. Uh, spell mm-hmm. out that contradiction for us a little bit, if you don't yeah. mind. Okay, well, I think you can take it further than that. And uh, although um, we are very much focusing on the ideational side, I think that Philip Morawski brings this out very, very well. We might want to talk about him later. Uh um, and I've been accused by some of my, uh, by what you mentioned, Leo Panich earlier. Uh, Leo <laughs> says that I'm too, I'm, there's too much on ideas in the book and there's not enough on yeah. political economy, but I've tried to marry yeah, the two. Yeah. Anyway, perhaps we'll come back to that. But essentially, uh, uh, and, you know, I accept some of the arguments about Morawski, but I still think his work is very, very valuable. And what I think he brings out really, really well, Hayek's great, uh, um, project is about the marketplace it's not neoclassical in this sense that individuals know what they want and so the marketplace you know is the means of giving individuals what they want his argument is the market reflects the limited knowledge of individuals so there's no one individual that can can tell us everything uh but as you said there were well you said there's one problem with this i think there's two The, the, the one problem is However, there has to be a collection of elites that can see this. And so there ah. has to be a collection of elites that um, preserve the market order. So they, they, they read the collective mind. They're, they're the ones who sort of look at the ticker tape of this collective mind and they sort of uh, interpret that ticker tape, so to speak, in a metaphorical sense. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, he says – and I'm I'm not saying this is completely contradictory, but it's it's ambiguous, shall we say? Uh, he, we they, they plan for non-planning, if you like. Um, but there is a uh, there is a deeper, I think, which you didn't pick up on. Uh, there's a deeper contradiction, um, which I don't know if you want me to talk about yet, because this is about the corporation. Because in a sense, and we can see this, we can see this today in terms of knowledge formation today. But in a sense, there's planning everywhere. But the idea that the capitalist economy today is based on market exchange here, there, and everywhere is nonsense. There's loads of planning within every massive corporation. So, now, of course, in the end, they are producing for a marketplace, but this is a world away from this kind of the, 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 the auto-liberal view, which is, you know, there's lots of free and ind- independent producers all producing and exchanging goods with each other. What we've got is massive organisations where central planning takes place. And so it's not, and so the, you know, the great strength of Hayek is the limits of individual knowledge. And I think that the, I don't think we can have a Soviet system of planning, of central planning, but he takes it too far. And then he says that knowledge is just individually produced. But of course, knowledge is not just individually produced. Knowledge is socially produced, not least within private corporations. So I think, I know there's a book coming out with Verso, which is called, it might even be out, uh, I, um, called something like The People's Republic of Walmart, uh, 
No, I can't. Yep. That's uh, by a, f- a friend of the show, former guest, and I'm going to be interviewing okay. him. Actually, that my interview with him might come out before I release this. Okay. Uh, but so feel free to talk well, about that. Uh, well, I've not read it. I've not read it, but I like the idea of it. The yeah. idea is basically yeah. that he's massive. I, I can't say too much because I've not read it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. I know that. I and mean, it might even be out. I'm not sure. But essentially, it's this idea. It's out uh, beginning of okay. March. Yeah. Okay. So it's out soon. So it, it's this idea that, um, that, there are the, all these small independent companies. And actually what's happened is you've got all these, they're, they're not socialist. I'm not, it's, it's, you know, I'm going to take, take it too far, but there are, there's collective planning within massive organizations and Hayek tries, well, Hayek on corporations is interesting. Early on, he's with the auto liberals. Okay. He's with the auto liberals. Uh, and he, and interestingly, he says in the, in the road to serfdom, that it's not just trade unions which are awful collective actors. Cart- he calls it. He describes them as cartels. Okay, and of course, some auto liberals said that cartels helped um, fasc- uh, German you know, Nazism get to power. Now Hayek doesn't say that, and of course, he says that Nazism is a form of socialism, which is hugely problematic because, of course, it's true that some companies did help Hitler get to power. But what's interesting in, in that, in those early days for Hayek, he was skeptical about large corporations. But by, uh, well, in the Montpellerin society, there's a big split. Uh, the Ordos fall out with the Chicago school and essentially neoliberals make their peace with private monopoly. So they make their peace with massive corporations. But these corporations embody central planning, some form of central planning. And so that, I think that is a big contradiction. So all of a sudden Hayek's views about the limits of knowledge are uh well they're not swept under the carpet but they're not consistent put it that way yeah former guest of the show steve marr has done quite a bit of work on that with respect to ge um and the way that these kind of uh firms operate as kind of these central planned internal markets that then you know work to comprise the the actual economic sphere of of a capitalist state in this really complex way. It's very fascinating, but you're right to point to these just glaring contradictions. Let's go back to and unpack some some more of this historical stuff for folks before we move into the 1980s and the way the way that people typically historicize and characterize the rise of neoliberalism. You've mentioned, and this is going to be a, a tall order, but you're up to the task. You've mentioned the Austrian school, the Ordo liberals, and the Chicago school. Uh, talk about very quickly for us uh, their origins, the key figures, and maybe some of the distinctions that arose between those various schools. Okay. Um, well, it, the Austrian school really emerges in terms of debates about central planning. And Hayek is the main person, but there's also Lud- Ludwig von Mises or Mises, depends on how you want to pronounce his name. Uh, so, and you probably have heard of the Mises Institute uh, as well. I do read a lot of this stuff. I, I tell you, it's, I find it fascinating. Um, oh boy! But <laughs> Some, I, somebody's got to do it. Uh, I know. Better you than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll wait until I tell you what I'm reading about uh, uh, later. But anyway, um, okay. So essentially, the argument here is, you know, uh, the Austrian school really come out of a critique of the idea of central planning, and there's disagreements. But the most distinctive one is Hayek, whose argument is no one individual can plan for another, except for they can plan for none planning. Uh, as I've just said. So that's where the Austrian school start. Now, the Austrian school develops in the 1930s. Hayek is very critical of 
Keynesian ideas about uh, fiscal stimulus. He doesn't like the New Deal. He believes that even the Conservative Party in Britain are uh, becoming too socialist. But what he means by socialist is collectivist. And he makes this argument that essentially, in terms of politics, well, he makes an argument against, uh, he makes an argument for austerity. And the argument is we should just leave it to spontaneous market processes. Okay, and that's, so he thinks that Keynes is wrong. But then that begs the question of why was there a post-war boom? But anyway, that's that's a big problem for uh, for Hayek. Uh, Hayek then becomes very influential in the seventies, but perhaps we'll come back to that. Uh, you want you said you want to talk about the seventies and eighties. The other thing that is distinctive about Hayek, I think, is and this is takes us back to people like Locke but, and Tocqueville and people like that. He makes this distinction between freedom and democracy, and between totalitarian and authoritarian regimes. And what he argues is you can have an authoritarian regime which is free. In other words, you still have the existence of private property in the market, but you can't have uh, a, t- a totalitarian system will not be free. And totalitarianism can come about through democratic demands being placed by the collective, and that will undermine the freedom of the individual. And ultimately, ultimately what he means by the freedom of the individual is the freedom of individuals to own property. But then we come back to Locke because most people don't. What about them? But he says he says some quite interesting things uh, in the Constitution of Liberty where he, he quite patronising things that our workers are quite happy to be dependent on other people. These are kind of things that people don't pick up so much on Hayek. Hayek tends to argue it's a free and equal contract, but we've talked about that earlier. But he does come out with some very elitist things in the Constitution of Liberty. But that distinction between uh, freedom and democracy and totalitarian authoritarian regimes is, of course, the basis for his support for the coup in uh, Chile in 1973. And the Mont Society actually met in Chile, I think, uh, if memory serves, I think it was in 1981. So that's uh, that's the Austrians. The, the ordo-liberals... Essentially, their argument is that um, they're quite nostalgic for a, a, a pre, if you like, um, corporate age. They believe that everybody should own private property, and they actually say that's the way you deproletarianize people. They use that language. So everybody should own private property which is quite interesting, uh, but it, they also argue, I mean, in that respect, I, I used to teach a lot of development. I don't these days, but they sound a bit like what some development economists, left development economists would call uh, neoclassical populists. So everybody having their own plot of land and this kind of stuff. Allotments are very important. To, to, um, yeah, you, you can see in the agrarian uh, historic cult- culture, the agrarian economic and political culture of the United States, why the, this kind yes. of uh, ideology was able to take hold so so deeply from the foundation of the republic in many senses. Yeah, and there, yeah. there are. I mean, even uh, this might give you a hint about where I'm going in terms of my current research. But uh, Pat Buchanan, former presidential candidate and obviously a forerunner to Donald Trump, uh, has said he's inspired by Wilhelm Rotka, who was probably the main auto liberal um and essentially Ropka plays a key uh, plays a key role in your book uh, tell our listeners who that is uh, for folks who most of us myself including uh, didn't have a whole lot of exposure to him aside from say Foucault's lectures on uh, neoliberal governmentality which are which uh, has to be said are very very good I mean Ropka is one is I think he's the most intellectual there are 
some more famous ones, Erhard, for example, who become very important in terms of the formation of West Germany and uh, the West German currency after 1949. But Rocker is essentially, and there's a few, like Müller Armack, who actually joined the Nazi party and coined the phrase social market economy. So there's a few of them. But essentially their argument is, and it, this does have some parallels with Hayek, is that the, the, is that the Weimar Republic is weak. And it's weak because it's been captured by lots of vested interests, including proletarians through trade unions, so that would be the communists, but also through um, through large corporations. They're very critical of large corporations. So they're kind of prudonist in some ways. They're saying that property, property is um, theft, but it's also liberty because everybody should have it. So there's a kind of romantic, backward-looking, let's get back to smaller-scale agriculture and stop these nasty cartels, which are un undermining competition. First time I've used the word competition, which is actually central to neoliberalism. Um, and so what they argue is the Weimar Republic has been captured by all these weak, uh, uh, all these, sorry, these strong interests. So the Weimar Republic is a very weak state. What you need is a strong state. So we're back to Pareto and we're back to Hayek. You need a strong state to protect what they call the free economy. Okay. In that respect, they are the, at the same time as this, these neoliberals emerging in Germany, you obviously have the Nazis, you have, you have the left as well, but you also have German conservatives, such as Karl Schmitt, who is arguing along these lines as well. He's saying that the, the Weimar Republic has been captured by, it's a weak state, we need a strong state. We need a strong state in part so that we can protect the market order. So we're back to this. There's a link between authoritarianism and supposed economic liberalism or economic libertarianism and that's what, what i think is central to to the auto liberals but what's distinctive in some ways about the auto liberals although rotka actually post-war has his writings on colonialism are horrendous uh an apologist for apartheid um all, and a, a highly racialized neoliberalism um but essentially uh they split from the other neoliberals over the fact that um, the other neoliberals make their peace with monopoly, make their peace with private monopoly after 1945. And around about the late 50s, early 60s, there's a split at the Montpellier in society. See, the right split as well as the left. So so there we go. And <laughs> right. I think that's important. Your book points to these ruptures and these splits in the right in the way that we typically uh, tend to define them as the enemy and therefore a monolith. Yeah, they're certainly not a monolith. I mean, that's, uh, yes. And that's why I'm trying to take these people seriously and trying to, you know, see what makes them tick while actually obviously criticizing them. Now, the third school is Chicago. And there is a, there is a kind of Chicago one, the first Chicago school, which is in the 1930s. And I don't dwell very much on them. They're, they're interesting, but they're, they're kind of they're not okay completely, but they're reasonably okay with the New Deal. Post forty five, although Friedman is around, Milton Friedman's around before in in at the Walter Lippmann Colloquium, where a lot of neoliberals meet in nineteen thirty eight in Paris. But then they obviously the war breaks out, so they don't meet. But they meet. They then form the Montpellier Society, which is a place in Switzerland after the war. And what the Chicago School, and not just the Chicago School, uh, the Virginia School of Public Choice Theory, which is James B people like James Buchanan, been the subject, of, of course, of a very controversial book recently by Nancy McLean, 
That's right. Essentially, what they what, what, well, Friedman is most famous for what he says about inflation being a monetary phenomenon and how you deal with inflation. Now, perhaps I should save that for when we get onto the real stuff, the, the political economy stuff, because uh, I, could, I can talk more about Friedman then. But what I think, uh, what, what's very distinctive about the Chicago School is, is really two things. Firstly, through a British economist, but he, he, he ends up in Chicago, I think, I'm right in saying, Ronald Coase, who's also at the London School of Economics, as was Hayek in the 1930s, Coase makes an argument for monopoly in, in effect, and this is taken up by Chicago people, but not Chicago economics people, by Chicago law people. And uh, I'm talking about judges, and I'm talking about uh, people like Bork and Posner, who I talk about a bit in the book. And essentially the argument is that if you're going to prevent monopoly, you need government intervention. But government intervention is not a costless process. So the costs of regulating to prevent monopoly are may well be greater than the than the cost of simply allowing monopoly to happen so this is why you get this massive concentration of capital uh, centralization and concentration of capital which you know conservatives had talked about someone like Weber had talked about uh, but we can talk about the gilded age in the united states going back to the you know the early 19th century sorry uh, late 19th century early 20th century so that's how they begin to make their peace with monopoly. And Hayek buys into this. And Friedman, he's ambiguous because there's always this rhetoric about the small businessman, and it generally is a man. We support the small... And this you get this in conservative thought as well, people like Russell Kirk as well. They, they talk very much... They talk up small business person while actually making their peace with monopoly. Okay? And that's what I think the Chicago School does. But the Virginia School then develops that insight even further by saying that essentially state actors or public sector workers are self-interested. Okay. And so, and this is where we get closer to a definition of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism, uh, uh, neoliberalism isn't simply about the free market. Neoliberalism is an argument that essentially human beings are self-interested and that applies not just to the market economy, which is what classical liberalism might have said, it applies across the board. So it applies to social workers, it applies to teachers, it applies to politicians, everywhere. Okay? And so we need to forge incentives. And this is, see, one of the arguments about neoliberalism that you hear again and again is that it's never been implemented because state spending as a proportion of GDP has never gone down. That is a red herring. That's a complete red herring. It's not about cutting back the state. For all the rhetoric of cutting, Margaret Thatcher talked about rolling back the state. What it's about is changing the behavior of the individual. Margaret Thatcher says somewhere it's about changing the soul, which is a pretty good definition of neoliberalism. It's changing how individuals behave to make them, in their eyes at least, make us all entrepreneurs, make us all individual self-interested people trying to develop our capital. Think of higher education reform. It's essentially, are you studying education as an end in itself because you want to learn knowledge as an end in itself, or are you doing it as a means to an end? Are you developing your human capital? And that links that links not just the new right, the, the Thatcherites and the Reaganites, it links that to Blair and Clinton, the Clintons as well. And this is partly why 
a lot of this is in crisis. But we come. I'm getting way ahead of myself here. Sorry. So this. This was good. That that was not only a, a great summation and signposting of of this the sort of uh, latter half of the conversation, but uh, just a really good pithy summation in general of how this stuff na- has now permeated. Uh, the rationality everywhere. And you see how many times do you hear in one given day, uh, you know, that's that, uh, you know, you need to do this for yourself as an investment in yourself, the way that this kind of market investment, entrepreneurial language and logic becomes the master narrative for the way that we uh, orient, whether it be professionally in relationships, personal, romantic family relationships, I need to invest energy into your children. I mean, that's a I mean, we all understand what, what what people are trying to say when they say that, but it's an odd framing if you really sort of uh, break out of uh, the natural the naturalism the naturalization rather of of that framing. Well, the best one on this who, who uh, it was was Gary Becker, who died only a few years ago. I mean, Gary Becker talks about marriage as you know you you choose a partner, but you know there's some opportunity costs in 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 foregoing a, an alternative partner. It's kind of it's incredibly instrumental, and I do wonder how he proposed to his poor wife because it was it was obviously not a very romantic one, oh, is my guess. But although he does say other things about families as well, but but he does, and Melinda Cooper has done some very good work on this uh, about the, the relationship between neoconservatism and neoliberalism. But essentially, yeah, it, it, it's across the board. It's absolutely across the board. And even, you know, uh, Murawski is very good on this. Things like how many people now, self-help books, how many self-help books are there now produced? Or, or youngsters going to the gym, obsessing about their body. It's, you know, so neoliberalism has perme- permeated society in so many different ways, which makes it very difficult to deal with. A great book on that. I'm sure you've heard, at least heard of it uh, in the United States context in terms of uh, this intersection of, of race and class and politics is uh, Lester Spence's Don't Knock the Hustle, or uh, sorry, Lester Spence's Knocking the Hustle, which is the way this kind of uh, self-help prosperity gospel has infiltrated the, the politics and culture of black America in a really uh, disturbing sort of way, undermining the kind of collective projects that really ground the revolutionary past of black politics. And, uh, it's, it's just, this stuff is just all over the place and it permeates uh, society in really fascinating ways that I think present critical challenges to socialists and socialist politics, which is why I think it's really important that, uh, folks like yourself are, are helping us understand the foundations here. So we've talked about the ordo liberals, the Austrian school, the Chicago school. And I think one of the, one of the ways that we can transcend this critique this constant dialectical tension between the ideational and the material is by, you know, your real emphasis here is not just this is what the figure said. And so we need to sort of pay attention to what they said because this is a historical man in time. But but their thought outlines real material contradictions and these contradictions play out and unravel and unwind throughout the course of the 70s, 80s and into present. So let's go there. Let's talk. Let's let's uh, stage the scene here uh, from the 1970s onward uh, when things begin to collapse for the so-called golden age of capitalism um, following post-World War Two. OK, so now I can talk. Um, I'm going to be less ideational, um, but I like the way you put how the I mean, one of one of the things I was trying to do in the book is is say, look, I don't want to just write a book which says this is a theory and this is how it's worked in practice and there's a gap between the two. What I was trying to do in the book was say, this is a theory and there's all kinds of contradictions 
And as you said, this, these are how they, some of them might play out in the real world. But I'm not saying that the ideas simply are then transferred to the real world. There's an interaction between the two. And I didn't, I didn't really want to, one of my problems with some uh, left accounts is they talk about capitalist restructuring and they called it neoliberalism. But I think if we're going to call it neoliberalism, we have to be clear on what neoliberalism is. And that's why I wanted to take the ideas very seriously. But of course, I'm not saying that there's this set of ideas and these intellectuals, and they just somehow then are transferred to to the, the real economy in the 1970s. It's obviously much more, there's much more interaction between the two. But what I think happens in the 70s, there, there is obviously in the mid 70s, there's an inflationary crisis. And the idea that is picked up on, in many ways, I think is the worst idea associated with neoliberalism. And it's not necessarily just associated with neoliberalism, but it's Milton Friedman's idea of monetarism. And and essentially, I mean, monetarism is essentially the argument that governments control the money supply. So what governments have got to do is either expand the money supply, as they were supposed to have done, according to Friedman and Anna Schwartz in the Great Depression in the 30s, or contract the money supply was what they were supposed to do in the 70s, but particularly in the Thatcherite and Reaganite 1980s. Okay, um, now that idea didn't work out at all. It didn't work out. There were in Britain, in particular, Thatcher, the Thatcherite government set all kinds of public sector requirement uh, borrowing requirements, and uh, but these monetary targets were just. Uh, you know, were just abandoned. They're quietly abandoned. The money supply increased enormously. That's because governments don't supply, don't, don't control the money supply. Much money is created by private actors, financial institutions. And we learned that big time in 2008. We, <laughs> we've, we've learned it through financial liberalization across in the neoliberal era. And we've had lots of financial crises, but obviously the biggest was 2007 8. And we're still living with the consequences of that. But in a sense, it wasn't the coherence of the idea that mattered. It was, it had a powerful critique of inflation, and inflation was a real problem in the 1970s. The effect, of course, wasn't to control the supply of money. The effect was to control the demand for money, and it led to massive, through interest rate rises in both the United States, I'm going to focus mainly on the United States and Britain here, uh, interest rate rises, the Volcker shocks in the United States, and the interest rate rate rises even more. I think I mean I haven't got the figures to hand uh, in in Britain, which led to catastrophic deindustrialization in Britain, and essentially then so it was a political project again. So so Friedman's idea isn't particularly coherent. It's not very good on how it, as an intellectual as an intellectually coherent idea. But as a political idea, it was very, very powerful. And that's why I think that monetarism, although it was in, in effect abandoned, and I think I'm right in saying that even Friedman owned up in the end and said, no, it's not a very good idea. But, but essentially, it worked as a political project. And that's where I think you get, you get the beginnings of neoliberalism. In the developing world, you got, you, I mean, it's partly to do with oil price rises in the, in the, in the 70s and then countries borrowing to deal with import bills and borrowing at very low rates of interest. But once interest rates went up in the United States, they went up globally. And so by 1982, lots and lots of countries in the developing world found their interest payment obligations to be horrendous. And this is very, very similar to what happens to mortgage owners in 2007. 
Okay, there's lower interest rates, but then interest rates go up and they can't they can't pay their mortgages. And this is what this was what was happening in the developing world, particularly in Latin America. And then if they wanted any more money, it was much harder to come by, but essentially it was now subject to conditions. These conditions were negotiated and so on, but essentially those conditions were often subject to IMF um, approval. Now, the IMF had started in 1944 and was seen as a sort of Keynesian thing. And Peter Bauer, who I talk about a bit in the book, thought the IMF was almost a communist conspiracy. But by the 80s, <laughs> by the 80s, there's loads of neoliberals running the show, uh, and indeed in the World Bank as well in terms of aid. And so what you get is essentially conditions. So what we get in here is basically public bodies creating neoliberalism. You can't live with the state. You can't live without the state. Now, in some respects, you have to think of the IMF and World Bank as public institutions, but it's their conditionality which helps to create neoliberalism in the developing world. Now, I'm not saying that's true everywhere. Of course, in Chile, it was different, but there was the military coup and so on. But essentially, you get the roll out of neoliberalism really in the um, 1980s, particularly in Britain and America, but also in the developing world. And I think in the 90s, it spreads even further, but it's much more uneven and incomplete. And, you know, we can talk about the European Union or, or, or or France or wherever, but that's where I think that this is what this is where you get the origins, I think, of neoliberal practice. Now, that's the carrot and the stick, right? Because you mentioned these structural adjustment programs that are visited upon uh, these kind of uh, third world countries in the 1960s and 70s. You get this debt, this international sort of this quote unquote debt crisis, which is completely artificial and, uh, you know, manufactured in, in many senses. Whereas you get, uh, you know, infamously, one easy way to conceptualize this is that Europe got the Marshall Plan and and the, and the former colonized world, the third world, uh, the global south got uh, structural adjustment programs in, 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 in severe crippling forms of, of uh, administered quasi-neocolonial debt. Uh, and so there's the difference, the, the sort of racist and imperialist difference there in, in the trajectories of the first world and the, in the, in the third world, the former communist countries as well after decolonization and the fall of the wall. But anyway, we've, we're sort of laying out a lot there. And one way that I love the way you've explained this, and this can carry us into the present, is that as Freud said, I believe in um, civilization and its discontents, he explains World War I in terms of uh, the barbarism of colonialism uh, coming home, mm -hmm. the, the roosters coming uh, home to nest, the chickens home, the chickens coming home to roost rather. And uh, in, 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 in that sense, we could use that sort of framing to understand what happens in the sovereign debt crisis following the 2008, 2009 Great Recession is uh, the structural adjustment programs that were visited upon the third world and the global south uh, in the 1960s, 70s and 80s and afterwards. Uh, that structural adjustment coming home. And there's no, I mean, you'd have to understand what's happened to the UK right now as nothing short of a structural adjustment program inside of this broad, inside of these broader uh, global forces. So let's, let's go there in the last uh, 15, 20 minutes of uh, sort of action packed <laughs> neoliberal analysis here. Okay. Uh, well, yes. Um, well, Britain's, Britain is a complicated, I mean, obviously the, the, the the case, the, the case above all where I think that you've had structural adjustment is is Greece. And 
much of Southern Europe. Britain it was slightly different, partly because Britain, of course, has got its own currency. And there has been austerity in Britain since 2010. What's interesting, uh, and that's had devastating impacts, particularly in terms of uh, things like local government, local government services, in terms of welfare reforms, certain losers in terms of welfare reforms, particularly the disabled. But one thing I will qualify there is that George Osborne, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer, had all these targets for getting the budget deficit down, which he never met. And actually, he said that Alistair Darling, who was the, who would have been the Labour Chancellor, had Labour won the 2010 election, if Darling's, Darling's targets were too soft and there'd be a massive financial crisis, again, if, um, if, if we just took the Darling route. Osborne didn't actually meet Darling's targets. So in, in that respect, of course, there's a counterproductive element to this. But in terms of its distributional impact, in terms of its impact on the poor, in terms of education, uh, lots of schools, uh, there's, a, there's a crisis of, uh, at the moment, there's a crisis, of, there's a shortage of teachers um, in schools in Britain. All these things uh, were a product of austerity. In the overall macro picture, he didn't meet his targets. So it was horrible in terms of its social implications and social effects and counterproductive even in a narrowly economic sense. But of course, yes, we've seen this. uh, We have seen some kind of structural adjustment. I think obviously not at such a severe level because people in the developing world often much lower per capita income. Uh, but we can see this across Europe in terms of youth unemployment and things like this. And one of the interesting things in, I mean, in somewhere like France, I'm s- sorry to say, but uh, that younger people are attracted to the far right. Uh, it's not really the case. That's not really the case in something like the Brexit vote, which I think is something slightly different. But uh, young, young people essentially didn't vote Brexit uh, on the whole. If they voted, not not a great deal, of, not many people voted. But but also it depended on class, location, and various other things. But age was a big factor in that. But in thinking southern, in parts of Europe, younger people have been attracted to far right ideas. Uh, but also, of course, uh, to some degree, they've also been attracted in Spain, for example, to much more left wing ideas. So um, it's not all doom and gloom. So there's much more to say, certainly, about neoliberalism, both as a political project, as an ideational sort of uh, project, as well as the kind of material social relations and the the processes of unfolding of political economic forces over the past 75 years. Uh, Unfortunately, we would need about eight to 10 more hours to do that any justice. Uh, But let's wrap this up by giving you an opportunity to talk to us a little bit about your latest project, which is in many senses a continuation of this neoliberal paradox, but in the way that it's manifesting in terms of uh, globalization uh, in the wake of, of this kind of crisis that we find ourselves in, uh, this kind of neoliberal crisis and the way it manifests politically and socially and economically. So so let's go ahead and wrap up there, if you don't mind for us. Uh, absolutely. Okay. So the last chapter of the neoliberalism book is, is kind of um, – it's an attempt to kind of say where are we now and where is neoliberalism now and i talk very briefly about uh trump and brexit and obviously at that point i thought well 
that's the next book project really so i've i'm, I'm writing a book at the moment um and i'm hopefully it'll be out next year uh first draft is nearly there but because of events i, I don't want to kind of submit anything because obviously here, here in britain we're waiting to see what's going to happen at the end of march trump who knows what's going to happen with trump um i don't think i can wait until the election next year but anyway i mean it, it, in some respects i'm not really doing trump and i'm not really doing brexit i'm thinking about those in terms of whether they represent a global a conservative globalization or conservative anti-globalization and it does relate to all the stuff as well about for one of a better word populisms and i do talk about that as well now i think you wanted me to talk mainly about brexit and i think brexit is an interesting one because obviously and i was toing and throwing and everything at the time but the EU, in many respects, I don't think in all respects, but in many respects, has become. I, I don't buy the argument that it was intrinsically neoliberal from the outset. I can I can see there's more neoliberal influences, but there are uh, there are other things going on, and particularly the arguments about social Europe, which are fairly tame, but they're not irrelevant. But what I think you've got uh, is still true that the EU has become increasingly neoliberal. We can see that in terms of the way that the euro has worked to discipline countries particularly somewhere like greece but even that and this is where i do disagree with some of the lexiteers even if they had their own currency you can have runs on your own currency national currency so it's not like the euro the euro is a straitjacket but it's not like your own currency is a panacea and i think you know we do have to remember that and we also have to remember in fact most neoliberals including milton friedman were against the formation of the euro so we, we have to remember that there is conservative Euroscepticism. Many economists uh, associated with, uh, with uh, Euroscepticism were against the Euro. But obviously there, there, are, there are disciplinary mechanisms in terms of um, limits on budget deficits and things like that, although countries don't necessarily. And state aid rules, and that's a big argument about whether state aid rules would actually um, limit the room for manoeuvre for a Corbyn government in, in Britain, should there be one. Uh, and there's a big debate about this, and the Institute of Public Policy uh, Research has just come out with a very good document, which shows, in fact, state aid rules are used very flexibly. So it's not quite as a straight as big a straitjacket as people make out. Now, having said that, that doesn't. I'm still quite Eurosceptic, but I, I didn't vote to leave. And the reason for that is because it was dominated by conservative Brexiteers, and I think that the whole exit thing really didn't see much, much light of day. And I think what the conservative Brexiteers want is essentially a neoliberal, even more neoliberalism. Um, uh, but they they've got with that some kind of nostalgia, and that nostalgia is for an Anglosphere, where you get uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, possibly the United States, sometimes India but all in some kind of trading block. Um, and this goes back to people like Joseph Chamberlain uh, in, in Britain, who was a protectionist. But what they want the Anglosphere for is even more free trade. And so they, it's a funny combination of Robert Peel in 1846, who repealed the Corn Laws and split the Conservative Party. Conservative Party always splits on these things, on international political economy. And uh, Joseph Chamberlain in, in, in the early 1900s. And there is a horrible nostalgia for empire. But also, I think there is, and this relates to my neoliberal paradox argument, there is this argument that actually we don't need trade deals in a sense 
Patrick Minford, a neoliberal economist who's kind of economist for Brexit's main person, argued for something called a world trade deal. And what he meant by that, we just spontaneously trade. And there's a tension, and this is this promise of a pristine free market. So neoliberalism, because, uh, sorry, the European Union might be neoliberal for us, but it's still got loads and loads of regulations. And regulations can be used, remember, you can't live with the state and you can't live without the state. So regulations can be used as a kind of scapegoat. And so, in a sense, for them, the European Union is not neoliberal enough. So there's this fantasy and this promise of um, uh, spontaneous markets, which brings us back to Hayek's distinction between spontaneism, spon- spontaneity and constructivism. But at the same time, they kind of realise it needs to be embedded in something. Uh, and I think they're off, some of them are talking about it being embedded in shared cultural ideas and so what we and i think this is one of the most interesting things and this is what i'm trying to work through i'm not the only person doing this we could argue going back to structural adjustment the 1980s was about getting the prices right okay uh 1990s with good governance the post washington consensus was about getting the institutions right now we might talk about neo a new phase of neoliberalism it's getting the culture right so some cultures are not conducive to the market order. Hayek argued this in the Road to Serfdom. Ropka argued this uh, in the 50s and 60s in in kind of his support for apartheid and his racism towards uh, South African blacks who were not market-friendly enough. And we're seeing a version of that now, um, not just, I think, in terms of Brexit, but in terms of various Eurosceptic groups not all of whom are anti-neoliberal. They may claim to be anti-neoliberal, but what they mean by that is they're anti-EU. The AFD in Germany has claimed allegiance to ordo-liberalism. Okay? Uh, they do talk about welfare state, but what they, what they mean by a welfare state is for the deserving rather than the undeserving poor. That's what the new right argued in the 1980s. So I suppose one of my arguments I'm now suggesting is that actually a lot of these populist movements have emerged as a reaction to if you like a technocratic third way socially liberal neoliberalism but actually what they're arguing for is what i think what nancy fraser has called a a, a hyper reactionary neoliberalism which is still the market order the recognition that market order has to be in embedded in certain things, which involves all kinds of racism. And you, we obviously we get that in the AFD, the Freedom Party in Austria, but we also get it, and, and obviously in Brazil, moving beyond the European Union, at the, Brazil at the moment, and India as well, uh, with the BJP, and Trump in many ways. But Trump also has some allegiance to protectionism, but he's a bit ambiguous about that. Sometimes one day he's protectionist, and the next day he's using that as a strategy to get a better deal. What he wants is bilateral deals. What this neoliberalism is about today is it's anti-multilateral and it's anti-social liberalism and cultural liberalism, but it's bilateral. It tends to be bilateral, the art of the deal. And that, I think, does link Trump to Boris Johnson and, and various other people. But there is a sort of nostalgia there. And Trump, the nostalgia is for the 1950s America, of much more manufacturing uh, secure employment, at least for white male workers. African Americans are kind of carefully swept under the carpet in Trump. But in Britain, uh, the nostalgia goes back further, and the nostalgia is for empire. But it's trying to put empire to the service of the new realities of globalization. 
But again, all of this, I think, is based on a fantasy of doing away with regulation. Okay, you cannot nearly that the basis for markets today, even more today when we've got global value chains. So a lot of uh, Brexiteers in Britain talk about standardization, harmonization, threatening British sovereignty. This is a big problem for the left as well, I have to have to say. But of course, if you want to be part of these global value chains, you have to harmonize. If you want investment, and this is why we're seeing car you know, car factories threaten to close down in Britain at the moment because they think it will not be part of global value chains. And that applies to services which might be linked to manufacturing as well. And this is the big contradiction in conservative globalization in Britain in terms of Brexit. And it kind of is a contradiction within Trump as well, who kind of thinks you just somehow these global value chains chains are going to disappear, which is a big problem for how you deal with these global value chains when you're on the left. Okay, and there I'm not saying I'm not saying we just scale up and forget about the nation state. It's but it's not one or the other. That's my argument. So there is you we've probably seen this in terms of uh, there are some left groups now in Germany uh, that talking about a much, much more focus on national sovereignty, but also German national identity. And they're kind of hostile. Right. The uh, Vegan Act is the leader there in, in Germany. It's gotten a lot yeah. of um uh, c- criticism and uh, from from at least I would say uh, components of the or sorry, there's got a lot of criticism from folks inside the U.S. left for sure. I'm not sure how she is received. In, uh, in no, well, I mean, left. well, Labour have been a bit un- Labour Party have been a bit ambiguous about this in terms of immigration, controlled immigration. So I, th- I think we need to look again. We uh, uh, we need to be much more pro multiculturalism because. We heard Hillary Clinton the other week, but Wolfgang Streak in Germany is saying the same. Oh, he hates Hillary Clinton, but Hillary Clinton says we've got to take if we're going to stop Steve Bannon. Not 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 that I think Steve Bannon's a serious person, but leaving that aside, if we're going to stop right wing populism, then we've got to have immigration controls. But that's not going to stop. That's not going to stop right wing populism. That's going to engage and encourage right wing populism because they'll always find another scapegoat. Because immigration migrants aren't responsible for the crisis of the welfare state or deindustrialization. So if you just kowtow or give in to scapegoats, then you just find the white will find another set of scapegoats. So it, we've, we've got to be much more proactive and challenging in terms of saying that uh, it, rather than giving in to these right-wing populists, uh, 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 including the Brexiteers, who want free movement of capital and labour, they don't want oh, sorry free movement of capital. They don't want a free movement of labour. Okay, um, just like Margaret Thatcher, uh, we we do have to challenge that much more. I think, and I don't think it's good enough for us to say, oh well, we need some kind of coherent national identity. We, we need, I I think we need to take identity seriously, definitely. Not least in Britain, we need to take English identity seriously, but not the kind of right wing exclusive English national identity that is around at the moment. We, we, that's got to be challenged. And certainly we shouldn't give in to it. I think one of the the, the sort of realities that we'll close here with, and I, to get your comment on this and the way that um, it's been spelled out by nearly everyone who I've brought on the show to talk about Brexit and, and uh, the kind of impasse we find ourselves in this kind of neoliberal paradox that you spell out here is that, uh, you know, Brexit or no Brexit, uh, the relationship of, of the British state and economy and, you know, society with uh, what what has now become known as the EU or the global uh, kind of uh, economy is is it's I mean that relationship is is going to 
continue. It's going to morph and, and, and meld and uh, be distorted in various ways. Let's hope not. But point being is that that's we will never have a final sort of reckoning uh, between Britain and the EU in the process of this Brexit. And so what we have here is another manifestation of this kind of utopian uh, utopian vision of neoliberalism, which is never able to enact itself due to this kind of paradox that's in, internal within it. And it's always sort of uh, flailing from one end of that uh, contradiction to the other end of that contradiction. Not never able to resolve itself. And uh, perhaps you see that uh, nowhere else uh, embodied nowhere better than inside the Absolutely. conflicts inside of the Tory party right now. Um, so how do you see that sort of playing out in the, in, the, in, the, in the future? And I know this is kind of a throwaway question, but lead us to the barricades, comrade Kylie here. What ought a Corbyn government do in the event uh, that they are at the helm of this? That's a, that, well, so, so that's a two-part question there, yeah. Okay, you said something about the Conservatives. So you don't want me to talk too much about the Conservative Party. You want me to talk about what a Labour government should do. Let's well, let's let's, let's make it a two-part question. Let's let's go with uh, how do you see the the contradiction inside the Tories uh, sort of playing out, and how that's going to resolve itself at least temporarily, and and then what will what will the Corbyn government do once this uh, tenuous thing and that's being held together by a shoestring these days inside the Conservative yes, Party collapses. Uh, very hard questions to finish on, but um, okay. Well, the, the the Conservative Party. I mean, heaven no. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the argument that the Conservative Party are the party of big business and they, you know, they're simply the executive committee of the bourgeoisie doesn't really hold water anymore because we've you've got this strange nostalgic wing that simply uh, put the primacy of the nation above the primacy of the British economy. Um, so they may well split. I, I, my guess, and Corbyn said this in Parliament today, I think, and um, is that May is trying to drag us so close to an abyss that, and in terms of a no-deal Brexit, as I keep on saying, you need regulations as a basis for markets to operate. If you want to be part of, you know, these markets, these value chains, or whatever, and you know, let's not be the anti. Let's not promote the anti-capitalism of fools and think you can simply delink from all this. You've got to find some way of trying to democratise these things, not delink from them. And but that's not to say you don't do anything at the level of the nation state. You, obviously, you do things at the level of the nation state, and you think about how they that how that works internationally as well. Um, so I don't know. I mean, my honest answer is I don't know. The Conservative Party, as I said, have split before. They split very seriously in the 1840s. They split a bit on the international in 1940, which they keep on going about Dunkirk, the Dunkirk spirit, but they conveniently forget uh, how, how many of them actually did want to make peace with Hitler. But uh, And obviously obviously, they, there was the, the split, the uh, Chamberlain. Uh, split as well, so <laughs> uh, so there might there may well be a split. There may be a split in the Conservative Party, but equally there may well be a split in in the Labour Party. And this this is a slightly pessimistic note on which to end. I mean, I'm less convinced there will be a Corbyn government now because I think the fractures in the Labour Party, Labour Party membership obviously soared, but it is. I mean, it's been exaggerated, but it is going down now, and there is some disillusionment I think with Corbyn about his uh, positions on Brexit. And I can see, you know, even in narrow electoral terms, he's he's got a very difficult 
very difficult balancing act in terms of losing uh, leave voters and trying to gain or hold on to remain voters. What should? Uh, but let's just assume that you know he's not doing so well in the opinion polls now. But it, it, they did; uh, they ran a very good campaign last time, so that could change. So let's say if there was a Corbyn government, I mean, the Corbyn government would. I mean, the state aid rules. I mean, if it were main part of the European Union, who knows? I mean, there are so many people in the Labour Party that want a second referendum, and if there was a second referendum, I think that Britain would vote to remain in the European Union. So if if that was the case, then you know he would have to do something sort of challenge these state aid rules, but I think that might be easier than he thinks. They need a big green investment plan, and there are some interesting initiatives. John McDonnell has got some very interesting initiatives, and I think, if I can make a narrowly political point, I think that McDonnell is much more interested in the small details than Corbyn is. Corbyn is a campaigner. He's not great in Parliament. He ran a very effective campaign at the last general election, but I think those kind of policy details would be left to people like McDonald, who have got far more interesting ideas about, you know, they're, they're not, there's not the revolution, you know, but I don't, you know, it's not season the Winter Palace, but I, for me, I'm with Leo Panic on this, I think that's gone. I mean, a revolution is much more, much more longer term thing, and it might well involve, it, it does involve Parliament, but it also involves a movement outside of Parliament. Momentum isn't big enough at the moment for that. And it's quite London. It's not. I don't want to exaggerate that. But so there are reasons to be sceptical. But at the same time, I remember the first time I ever met Jeremy Corbyn. I was a student and I was involved in a, a left-wing group. And I sold, uh, I won't say which one. Um, uh, and uh, I sold him a newspaper. And I think that must have been <laughs> in about 1983. I was 19. If you had said to me, <laughs> okay, well, that, that, okay, that well, it wasn't socialist work. I, I can speculate. Um, <laughs> okay, no, 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 no. It's, it's, oh, okay, all right. That was, it was easy uh, it's much more obscure than being, that. Being but essentially, um, yeah. if you had said to me that Jeremy Corbyn would be leader of the Labour Party thirty odd years later, I would have said you are absolutely barking. So we have seen obviously very significant shifts, but. You know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I, I still think that at the moment where there's good grounds for pessimism of the intellect, because there are weaknesses in the Corbyn leadership. I think uh, McDonnell, I think, is is much better, and also I think that um, they haven't really come up with a very convincing plan on Brexit. Not that's not to say I've got a better one. I'm not sure anybody has. Actually, it's incredibly yeah, difficult. Yeah. And I'm not sure what the answer is, but uh, so I'm going to cop out there. I'm afraid. <laughs> well, I think we can both agree they're stuck between this Janice Face Labour Party as it exists right now in terms of uh, trying to speak for for both uh, wings of uh, of that of their membership. You know, the the kind of. Um, but I think even within the left, I mean, there are some that are more pro EU. Well, they're not pro EU, but they don't want to leave the EU. And then there are some that are very, you know, strongly Lexiteer. So I, I think even that. Even that, it's not like all the pro-EU people, all the people that don't want to leave at least, are, are Blairites or anything like that. I think it's more complicated than that. So it's And it's a very, very difficult one. And You've got Greece playing out uh, part two here. You've got Varoufakis on one end and you've got uh, Lapovitsis on the other. <laughs> same same as it ever was, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're just sort of stuck with this paradox in yeah, this, uh, it's very, this really very intractable way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've given us a lot to think about here. This book is really fantastic. Uh, the the soft cover uh, the uh, will will come out a much more affordable version of this book late summer. 
uh, into the fall, I suppose. Is that correct? I think so. I'm not absolutely sure, but I think about August, September. Okay. So look out for that paperback of the neoliberal paradox. It's well worth uh, the investment should you go ahead and purchase the hardback. I encourage this to all of my uh, uh, educator friends out there, scholars, uh, people who are teaching uh, undergraduates or graduates for sure. People who are ready to dive into to, uh, a kind of more heavyweight, but also digestible, uh, sweeping history of the ideas and and the political economy of of this moment. Uh, this is a great book, and uh, Ray, we look forward to having you back on Dead Pundit Society when this next book on uh, globalization comes out. Okay, thanks very much. Baby, baby. Oh.